this all in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes 9, 11 through 10, 20. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in, in them all. From, oh, sorry. So like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is evil that I've seen under the sun, as if it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place, walking on the ground like slaves." He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness a fool multiplies words though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him the toil of a fool wearies him for he does not know the way to the city woe to you O land where your king is a child and your prince's feast in the morning happy are you O land where your king is the son of the nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of God. Well, I don't know what your day has been like, but my day has been crazy so far. You know it's crazy when the pastor is trying to sneak in the back of the church after the service has been going for 15 minutes. So, y'all could say a prayer for me. But on days like today... um, I'm just really thankful that no matter what is going on in our lives, God is good and God's word is true. Amen. We should celebrate that to start out. Everybody say God is good. good. Say God's word is true. Hey, I want to bow my head and invite you to bow your head with me one more time. Let's ask God, the Holy Spirit, to help us as we study his word today. Father, in this moment, I just celebrate that you are good. No matter what's happening in the world, no matter what's happening in our personal lives, you're faithful, you're wise, you're gracious. We praise you for the privilege of opening the Bible and hearing your word. 
Lord, I thank you for every individual in this room right now. Lord, we know that nobody is here by accident, that you and your love brought us together today because you want to bless us and teach us and do a special work in each of our hearts. So I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Would you help me to teach your word faithfully, with clarity, and with the empowering grace of your Spirit? Would you help us all to understand your word, to believe it, to obey it, to be transformed by your grace? Would you exalt Jesus here in this place during this time? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we just heard a long passage of Ecclesiastes that talks about a lot of stuff and can be a little overwhelming. So I want to start just by identifying the two key words in this text. They are wisdom. Everybody say wisdom. And folly. Everybody say folly. The themes of wisdom and folly have come up a lot in our study of Ecclesiastes. In one way, the the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about wisdom. It's specifically about how do we live with joy and faithfulness and integrity and dignity, even in a world which has been profoundly broken by sin. But there have been certain parts of the book in which the sage who's teaching us here turns to think about the theme of wisdom itself and cause us to ponder questions about what is wisdom and what does it look like to put wisdom into practice in our lives And here, as elsewhere, the sage is saying to us, wisdom is a powerful creative force for good in the world. But foolishness, the opposite of wisdom, is a very destructive force in the world. And that's something we can just look at the world and see everywhere. Have you noticed that? But today, I want to start by asking again the question that we've asked several times in our study of Ecclesiastes. What is wisdom? And this chapter gives us a few more insights to think about it. Now, when we talk about wisdom, first of all, we're talking about an attribute of God. Only God is all wise. And God in wisdom created the world and and uh, wove wisdom into the fabric of his good creation. But we're talking about what does it mean for a human being to be wise? And I want to try to summarize a little bit of what this text says in advance and then show it to you in the text. So a wise person, according to... Scripture, in this text in particular, is marked by two things. You can say it like this. They have a healthy heart and a skilled hand. So everybody say, a healthy heart, a skilled hand. Those two go together in the life of a godly person, a wise person of godly wisdom. Let's talk first about the skilled hand. I want to invite you to look with me at chapter 10, verse 10 from our text uses a great metaphor here. It says, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Now this verse is using a metaphor. Imagine for a, section, for, for a second that you are a lumberjack. Can you imagine that? And you're, you live up on the top of a hill... Your shop with all your tools is at the top of the hill. And down at the bottom of the hill, one mile away, is the woods. That's where all the trees are. So you, early in the morning, you load up your axe, you walk a mile downhill, and start chopping trees. you got to chop down these trees and haul the wood back up to your shop where you can uh, get it ready to sell. That's your job. And you're chop, chop, chopping away... And by the time about 9.30 a.m. rolls around, the axe isn't cutting as fast as it used to. What's happening? The blade is getting dull. That's right. And now you've got a choice to make. You could keep chopping or you could go sharpen it. Now, if you're doing that, you might look up that big old hill and think, that's a long way. I don't want to walk up that hill. That's tiring. Plus, look, i got a quota to meet. I've got to get through five trees, big old trees today, and get them back to the shop. I don't have time to stop and sharpen this axe. So I'm going to just keep chopping. I don't have time to sharpen the axe. Now, if you do that, what's going to happen? (laughs) The the axe might break. That could happen. Here's here's probably what's going to happen. By the end of the day, a few hours pass, your axe has become a hammer. It's real dull now. What happens if you hit a tree all day with a hammer? Well, what happens by the end of the day... Maybe you work really hard all day. You got through one tree and you threw a disc in your back. 
So now you got to take five weeks off of work. It's a, it's a problem, right? And it's saying that's that's one option. Or you could pause, take some time, walk up that up the hill, take some time, sharpen that axe, and go back downhill. That was inconvenient, but when you get to the bottom, your axe is sharp again, and by the end of the day, you've made it through five, six trees. You meet your quota. You got that in your mind? Now it's using this as a metaphor for life. I mean, basically. This is a way of saying, live smarter, not harder. Anybody in your life manage to live hard instead of smart from time to time? Lord have mercy. Sometimes we make our lives a lot harder than they need to be. And what this is saying is wisdom teaches you the skills that you need to get through life well. So if there's people in the room, you've got a problem area in your life, an area that you want to grow in. Now you've got to ask yourself the question, am I willing to do the work to stop and sharpen the axe, as it were, to, de- to develop my skills, to grow in wisdom in order to navigate this area of my life? So, for example, you got married a couple years ago. We've got several people in the church who have been married within the last five years. And so now all your blissful excitement about this romance has not disappeared, but it has been chastened by reality. Two sinners in this marriage, right? And you've got marriage problems, you're trying to work it through. The question is... How much do you really want to work it out? Are you willing to do the hard work of sharpening your axe, taking time out of your schedule, time away from work to go to that marriage conference or marriage retreat? Are you willing to go to marriage counseling? Are you willing to get some books to help you sharpen your communication skills? You hear what I'm saying? What it's saying is a lot of us are going through life getting frustrated, exhausting ourselves and not achieving the results that we want to achieve. And it's diagnosing the problem. What we need is to do the hard work of getting wisdom for this area of our life. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about a skilled hand. Everybody say a skilled hand. Now, I'm using the hand as a metaphor here. Of course, this could apply specifically to your hands. If you happen to be a carpenter or you happen to be a musician, the the Bible uses wisdom to talk about literal skills with your hands. So a minute ago, Kent was playing the guitar to help lead us in worship. He had skilled hands from practice, develop wisdom. But this is also just a metaphor to talk about skills for life. Learning how to work with people, people skills, soft skills, emotional skills, how to manage your emotions, how to manage your words well. Talking about skills for life. But having skills for life isn't enough. If you went around in our culture today and asked people the definition of wisdom, a lot of people would say something like, wisdom is applied knowledge, or wisdom is skilled living, skill for life. That's only half of the picture here. There's more to it. We also got to talk about the healthy heart. So everybody say, a healthy heart. Now, to get us into this idea, I want you to look at verse 2 on your text. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 2. says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Okay, we've got to talk about what does this verse mean. First of all, let's talk about the heart. What is the heart? Well, in the Bible, the heart is a way of talking about the center of your being, not just talking about the organ that pumps in your chest. And it's not just talking about your emotions. That's how we tend to use it in our culture today. It's talking about the center of your being, uh, where your deepest values are. It's the place where your thoughts are. It is the place where your emotions are in the Bible, but it's more than that. It's about your values and your priorities. Perhaps the, the best way to say it is down in your heart is where your deepest loves are. The condition of your heart could be diagnosed in, in a lot of different ways. But one of the best ways would be with this question. What do you most love? That's how St. Augustine frequently talks about a healthy heart. A healthy heart is a heart with property, properly ordered loves. God is loved above all. And then people are loved in God. And then everything else comes beneath that. But a lot of people are driven by unhealthy hearts in which something other than God is loved most. So a healthy heart, it has to do with what you love. So another way to ask it is, or to say it'd be the wise person loves the right things or the wise person values the right things or the wise person desires the right things. But let's talk about the rest of the verse. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, a fool's to the left. The, the tricky thing about this in Hebrew, in the scripture, there's actually no verb there. A more literal translation would be this. The wise man's heart 
right hand. The fool's heart, left hand. The Hebrew is intentionally ambiguous to make us think, and there's multiple ways of interpreting this. There's multiple levels of meaning. What it's saying is, what you love in your heart, first of all, it's saying, it will set the direction of your life. Okay? That's, that's what our ESV translation is. That's how it's interpreting it. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. So, all of us here today, there's some things that we love, there's something that we love most in life. And then we've got priorities. If I love money the most, that's going to steer my life one direction. If I love myself the most, that's going to steer my life one direction. If I love God the most, that's going to steer my life another direction. But whatever's in our heart, whatever we love is going to shape the direction of our life. A second way of interpreting this also is that in the Hebrew Scriptures, the right hand is frequently the symbol for strength. Your right hand is the hand that bears the sword, whereas the left hand is a symbol for weakness and vulnerability. So it's saying a person who has a healthy heart that loves the right things, that's going to set the direction of their life and it's going to give them strength and stability and protection in life. But a person whose heart is unhealthy, that's going to set the direction of their life in a bad way, and it's going to make them vulnerable, it's going to be self-destructive and make life hard. So wisdom here involves two things. Everybody say, a healthy heart and a skilled hand. Now, already here, um, we should recognize this is a big deal. Basically, it's saying that's going to shape your whole life. Everything about the outcome of your life is going to depend on this. Do you have a healthy heart? Do you have a skilled hand? The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. Okay? So if you have an unhealthy heart, that's called being foolish. And which of those is the case is going to determine the outcome of your life. Follow along with me. Let me just point you to a few verses that make this point. Chapter 9, verse 18. You find it there in your bulletin or in your Bible? Wisdom is better than weapons of war. So in other words, wisdom is a powerful force. And this is coming in the context of a story that was just talking about a wise peacemaker, right? So wisdom is more powerful than weapons of war and it can lead to peace in your life and in the world. But then the second half of the verse says, but one sinner destroys much good. Folly and sin can rip families apart. They can rip churches apart. It can rip nations apart. Or look at verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. What is that saying? It's saying you can make a lot of wise decisions in life and then choose to make one really foolish, destructive decision, and it can rip your family apart. I've seen that happen, friends. As a pastor, it's one of the saddest things. And when that happens, I'm so thankful for the grace of Jesus. Even after that destructive, foolish decision, God still loves you. Isn't it great to serve a loving and forgiving God? He still loves you, but sometimes the effects of that sin is going to be there anyway. It's true in, in your career. You can spend a lot of time making good decisions and being wise in your career, and then you make one really foolish thing, and all that success comes crashing down. It's true in every area of life. So wisdom is a constructive force for good, and foolishness is a very destructive force. We can go deeper, because as we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that we've seen is that this book uses the word wisdom differently in different contexts, right? And sometimes it seems to be talking about godly wisdom, but sometimes it's talking somewhat ironically about what we could call worldly wisdom, which is different than folly, but it's still not godly wisdom. So let's talk about that distinction. Everybody say godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. Now, the categories that we're here, using here today can help us make this distinction. A worldly wise person may have a skilled hand, but their heart is unhealthy. Whereas a, God, a person with godly wisdom has both. So here's what I mean. Some people are very skillful at doing their job. They're skillful about relating to people. They're skillful for their words. They have all the tools to achieve their goals. They've got a sharp axe. But the problem is that the goals themselves are disordered. Some people in this room, maybe God's trying to help you recognize that in your life, you're really successful. 
at a lot of what you're doing, but the Holy Spirit may want to be touching your heart to say, but what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? Because already throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we've read some stories of people, including the sage himself, the one who's speaking, saying, I devoted a lot of my life to pursuing pleasure and I was skilled and I got it and I found in the end that it wouldn't satisfy me. Remember chapter 2? He said, the more I pursued self-indulgence and achieved all my desires, the more I found myself empty. We've, we've read already in Ecclesiastes about people that were trying to achieve significance, ultimate significance through succeeding in their career. And we didn't read about people who failed in the career. We read about people that succeeded in their career. They climbed that ladder all the way to the top and found there's nothing there. It was still empty. That's different than a fool. A fool doesn't succeed in their career. And a fool is not good at achieving their goals. A worldly wise person is good at achieving their goals, but the goals themselves are wrong. A person of godly wisdom has a heart that treasures God, that loves God more than anything. Now, the rest of this chapter, this section of scripture that we've read, talks about different categories of life in which we can apply this concept of wisdom and think about um, how it works. We don't have time to talk about everything in there because it was a big passage of Scripture. But let me just try to demonstrate how it works real quick by talking about three different areas of life. We're going to talk about words. We're going to talk about politics. Lord, do we need more wisdom dealing with politics in the world? It's a lot of foolishness. So everybody say words. Everybody say politics. And we're going to talk about work. That's the third one. So words. First, words are important. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You already know this from your experience. I want you to think in your life about a time where somebody spoke some words to you that just spoke life into your soul. Can you think of it? Man, I can think of some moments where a parent or a teacher or a pastor or a friend or a mentor encouraged me or spoke the truth of Jesus to me or maybe corrected me. I was on a bad track and they called me back. And man, it was life. For me. Raise your hand if you, got, if you can remember a time like that. If, if you don't have a time like that, come talk to me. I want to speak some words of life, of life to you. Jesus loves you. God cares about you. He wants you to have a relationship with Him. Words of life. But also, words can destroy. And probably all of us here have had the experience of when someone spoke something critical and mean and destructive to us and it hurt and it cuts us deep. And sometimes years later, we still think about it and the pain hasn't gone away. Well, those words, they have the power of life and death, and they say a lot about what's going on in our hearts. As a matter of fact, in Luke 6, 45, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you're going to speak words of life, you need a what? Somebody shout it out. I'm trying to recognize the pattern here. Everybody say a healthy heart. I mean, the answer to a lot of these questions today is going to be a healthy heart, skilled hand. Just trying to let you know, okay? You need a healthy heart, but you also need skill. Because if you have good intentions, I mean, I don't know about you, sometimes I've had good intentions, I wanted to love and encourage somebody, but then the words came out and did not do what I wanted them to do. Anybody ever been there? So you also need skill with your words. Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. So there's skill. Not only do we need a heart that's healthy, that loves God and loves people, but we need the skill to how to know what's the right word For the right time, the right situation. Now, Ecclesiastes 10 says a little bit about this, especially in verses 12 through 14. Let's just look at those verses for for a moment. You find it? Ecclesiastes 10, starting verse 12. says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. We'll pause right there. The words of a wise man's house, uh, mouth, excuse me, win him favor. That's a way of saying people like him. People trust him. A wise person knows how to speak the kinds of words that produce good relationships. But a a fool, by contrast, speaks the kind of words that are self-destructive. If you know people in your life who have a lot of really healthy relationships, those are people who have learned to use words wisely. But you can also do a diagnostic here. If you have a lot of totally dysfunctional relationships, you may need to work on your words. You see that? Verse 13 continues the thought, talking about the fool, says the beginning of the words of his mouth, that is the fool's mouth, is foolishness 
And the end of his talk is evil madness. That doesn't sound good, does it? If you were here last week, Pastor Chauncey talked to us about those two words, evil and madness. Ecclesiastes says evil and madness are built into the human heart because of original sin. Every human being has something wrong with us. We've rebelled against God and that has corrupted us. We need to change our hearts. And I'm going to go ahead and give a little spoiler where the sermon is going to go at the end. Who's the only one that can change a sick heart? Only Jesus can do it. We've all got sin built into us. And, and it defined that sinfulness in our hearts with these two words. Evil, which is a broad word for badness, but the Hebrew word implies a willingness to hurt others. Okay, And then this word madness is talking about destructive, irrational type behaviors, and it's especially related to self-centeredness or arrogance. So when you put this together, the basic human problem is that all of us are going around, um, as my friend Pastor Harold Bullock says it, we all want what we want when we want it, we all think that we deserve it, and if you're going to get in our way, we might be willing to hurt you to get what we want. That's the human condition. Now, that's true for all of us. But the wise person knows how to confess their sins, open their hearts to God's grace, allow God's grace to change the heart so that that stuff gets healed. And instead of that coming out of us, self-giving love and humility and truth flow out of us. But what verse 13 is saying is the fool allows that stubborn selfishness and that willingness to harm others to grow in our hearts until it flows out of our mouths and destroys relationships Hurts people, destroys community. Verse 14 goes on and says this. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell what will be after him? Basically, it's saying foolish people run their mouths even when they don't know what they're talking about. Anybody feeling convicted right now? Your pastor, let me tell you, I'm an extrovert and a verbal processor. And I have proved this problem many times in my life. Thank God for the grace of Jesus. Just keep talking. I start out talking about stuff. I know what I'm talking about. And then I keep talking. And it's saying that's that's foolish. Listen, sometimes being wise means being willing to say something. Being silent is not always virtuous. Sometimes we're silent out of cowardice. Sometimes we're silent because we want people to like us more than we want to speak a life-giving truth. But a lot of times, the opposite is the case. The wise person is the one who knows how to restrain their words. It's good sometimes to say the words, I don't know. Three of the best words to learn how to say, I don't know. Or here's a variation of that. What do you think? <laughs> Instead of just talking of like we know what's going on. Fools to keep talking, even if they don't know what. Or here's another one. A wise person learns how to say nothing at all. <laughs> just to close the mouth and be quiet. So if we put these pieces together, what it's saying is, Foolish people let sin in their hearts flow out unrestrained in a way that destroys relationships. But wise people filter their words through the word of God. So that instead of pride and selfishness flowing our hearts, we stop and think, do I have something true and helpful to say? And if we don't, then we stop talking. But if we do, then we speak words that give healing and life to others. That's about wisdom and words. What about wisdom and politics? Well, this chapter has a lot to say about that. I'm just going to touch a few highlights, so follow along with me quickly. Chapter 9, verse 17. I heard some people say, mm, when we read this one a second ago. The words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. What an interesting verse. This is written a long, long time ago, centuries ago. Ecclesiastes calls us to be respectful of civil authority, but here the text is also reminding us that because of human sin, very often when you get into the world of politics, you're getting into the world of a lot of loud foolishness. That was said lots of centuries ago, and over the course of centuries it's proved also to be true. Christians should care about government. We should care about politics. We should want what's happening in our government to glorify God and to honor the dignity of human beings. But we need to be careful about a kind of political idolatry in which we become obsessed with it. And this text is saying you need to learn how to tune out the political noise, quiet your soul and hear the wise, life-giving words of God to recenter yourself if you're going to be able to engage the public sphere well. Did you hear that word, everybody? This may feel a little relevant. Do you think in 2020 it's possible that we could become so overwhelmed by political noise that we lose our bearings? 
Okay, people of God, it's saying, learn how to log out, how to turn off the TV, how to get off social media, to take time to tune out the noise, to recenter, to be quiet in the presence of God and hear his life giving word. Keep reading. Chapter 10, verse 4. Let's skip down. It says, if the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Wow. Friends, I would say calmness is underrated. Calmness is underrated. Calmness can be a powerful force for good. So, if you get pulled over by the police, or if you go to court for a court date, or if you're having a conversation with a senator, Ecclesiastes is just being real talk, saying that person has power to affect your life. Don't be an angry fool who runs your mouth and gets yourself in trouble. Calm down. Pray. Be respectful. In our culture, at least in my generation, I think we've actually made a virtue sometimes out of angry passion. Has anybody else noticed this? Does it seem to be going well? seems that we're shouting at each other, shouting at each other, and it's made civil discourse much more difficult. Calm down. Be respectful. Be quiet. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. I'm going to read 5 through 7. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. As it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Understand, uh, this is being sarcastic in a funny but profound way. What is he saying? He's saying there's a lot of people who are in positions of power. They're running the city. They're running the country. But really what they're most suited to be is the workers at the bottom of the totem pole. And there's a lot of people who are being oppressed and exploited who are working at the bottom of the totem pole that actually have really good sense. It would be nice if they were in charge. Do you hear that? He says the same thing again. Verse 16, 17. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Both of these passages are making a simple point. If you get a wise, just, godly, gracious, righteous person in charge in your community, that's really good for the community. But the per- if the person who's in charge is a fool, that's really destructive. Amen? So what do we do about this? Well, first of all, let me just say this. This may sound weird for some of you guys. Some of you should pray and think about a life of public service. I think in the Christian church, sometimes we have made some professions heroic. Being a missionary is heroic. And I think we should celebrate missionaries. Aren't you? We prayed for some a minute ago. Aren't you thankful to God for missionaries who go across the world bearing the gospel in hard places? We should celebrate missionaries. Sometimes we make pastors or spiritual leaders heroic. We also celebrate at Christ Community Church. We've celebrated a lot of educators, teachers, healthcare professionals who are using their gifts to serve in our community. We should celebrate it. But sometimes we've lost sight of the fact that a person can go into a life of public service, can go into a government job or a police officer job and be a tremendous force for good if they'll be righteous in that place. Think, think about William Wilberforce, guys. He became a Christian. He was already in Parliament in England. And he thought, now that I'm a Christian, I should not devote myself to politics. I should go join a Bible society or become a pastor or something. Thankfully, he had some wise, godly people in his life says, listen, you're a Christian at a critical time in our nation. Perhaps God puts you in this place of influence for a reason. And he ended up devoting his life to using that political position to bring the slave trade to an end in England. And after years and years of struggle, he succeeded. Aren't you glad that he persevered? So there may be some people in this room that you should pursue a life of public service. Anybody in the room who has this the opportunity to vote, I encourage you, steward that vote. Use it in a way that is trying to get people who are wise and righteous and just in office. And finally, for all of us here, we need to pray for our leaders, don't we? Pray that whoever wins the elections, God's going to help them to restrain their folly and to walk in wisdom in a way that will honor God and honor people. Okay, let me move quick. Wisdom and work. Work's a big deal. Everybody say work. Here's something to think about. If you have a bad attitude about work, that means you're going to spend most of your waking hours throughout your adult life having a bad attitude. You're going to be working a lot. Okay, you're going to sleep a lot and then when you're awake, you're going to work. 
So we need to have a biblical attitude about work. We need to have a biblical attitude about rest as well. But this says a lot about work. So let's start by looking back at verse 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Think about this in your work. Some people get frustrated in their jobs and feel like I'm exhausting myself, exhausting myself. I'm not accomplishing all the things that I want to. And everybody's overlooking me and I keep not getting promoted and I'm frustrated. Other people get into their job and say, I'm exhausting myself and I'm not achieving the things that I want to do. I need to get better at this job. Do you hear the difference between those two? So there's a challenge here. Christians. In the workplace, what would it look like if each of us said, I want to serve here with humility and I want to do what I can to to not out of a competitive, selfish motivation, but out of the motivation of love to figure out what what if I became the most skilled worker I can be in this office to serve others? What if I went and found a career mentor? I took the initiative to find somebody that could mentor me to be good at my job. What if I took responsibility for professional development to become the best I can at my profession? That's challenging. Would that take effort? Yes, it would. Which is a good reason to look at verse 18. See, Ecclesiastes 10:18 says, Through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. It's saying, if we're lazy, then life's not going to go very well. It's going to fall apart around us. So we need to learn how to work hard. And we need to learn how to work with excellence. Now, there's already been several times in Ecclesiastes where the sage has told us, listen, if you want to learn how to live a joyful life, you've got to learn to do your work with all your might. Throw your vigor, throw your heart into your daily work. Look for every opportunity to do, do good. And now, he's warning the opposite. If you're dragging your feet and you're always complaining and being lazy about your job, life's just going to go poorly and be frustrating. Is that real talk? Are we all too busy being convicted to say amen right now? Amen. There we go. But then, Ecclesiastes also says something confusing and weird. Let me read for you verses 8, 9, and 11. Listen to this. It's talking about work, but it says some strange things. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits log is endangered by them. Let's skip down to verse 11. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Wow. What is this saying? It's listing a bunch of people who are doing their job and then it goes terribly wrong. You're quarrying stones and then what happens? You're hurt by them. You're splitting logs. There's our lumberjack from verse 10. He went back. He sharpened the axe. He's coming back down the hill. He swings his axe and he's hurt by a log. A tree falls on him. What is it saying? This is one of these moments in which Ecclesiastes is taking seriously the fallenness and brokenness of the world. And it's saying there are risks associated with all work. Now, those risks are amplified if you're foolish. Okay? If you're working in that stone quarry or if you're a lumberjack cutting down those trees and You're in a hurry, so you don't take the precautions you need to. You're much more likely to hurt yourself. But even if you're wise, there are risks. Even if you're wise, you could get hurt. In other words, this is talking about what we today call occupational hazards. Whatever work you do, there's risk associated with it. Now, if you're working on an oil rig or if you're working in a a construction site or if you're working in a factory moving boxes. There's lots of people in this congregation who are doing all that kinds of work. You know, there's certain physical risks there. You need to be safety conscious. But this is true of any profession. We've also got people in the room who are social workers or who are therapists or who are teachers or who are working for a Christian ministry or who's a stay-at-home parent. That's your work all day, every day. And are there occupational hazards associated with that too? Of course. There's all sorts of emotional risks. There's all sorts of relational risks. There's financial risks. The point is, Whatever you do in life, there's going to be risk associated. Now, the question is, what are we supposed to do about that? What's the takeaway? Is the takeaway sit in your house all day long to avoid risk? Well, the answer is no. I can say that for two reasons. First of all, um, we've already heard that indolence is going to make your house leaky. So if you're lazy and scared and you sit in your house all day, eventually it's going to start leaking on your head. Right? That's not what you want to do. But more seriously, when we get to chapter 11, the first several verses of chapter 11 
make the point. You'll hear about this next week. But they make the point in all of life there is risk. But the wise person learns how to take appropriate risks to pursue the good. In other words, the wise person trusts God and longs to do good more than they fear the problems that could come from trying. So if we put these together, what it's saying is don't take foolish risks. Be prudent, but appreciate the fact that all of life involves risks. So at some point you have to say, I'm going to trust God and pursue the good and put the results in God's hands. We talked about words. We talked about politics. We talked about work. These are lots of different areas of life. And for all of them, what we need to have, everybody say, a healthy heart and skilled hands. But as we're wrapping up today, I want to note some verses here that are really important. Because we've seen here and elsewhere in Ecclesiastes that if we walk in wisdom, that has the potential to be a creative powerful force for good in the world. And if we walk in foolishness, that's destructive. But this does not mean that if we walk in wisdom, we're guaranteed that life is going to go smoothly. It doesn't mean that. I want you to look with me at some verses that are probably going to feel troubling to us, but I think facing them can help us find great peace in life. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, very beginning of our text. It says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. I want you to circle those words, circle time and circle chance. Time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of mine are snared, excuse me, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Here's what it's saying. Even if you're a wise person with a healthy heart who navigates life skillfully, that is no guarantee that life is going to go smoothly. That's no guarantee that you're going to promote, get promoted to the top place in your job. There's no guarantee you're going to live a long life. There's no guarantee that you're not going to have relationships that blow up in your face. That's no guarantee. Because we live in a sinful, broken world, and in that world, time and chance happen. What does this mean? It means you can train your whole life as an athlete, and then the week before the Olympics, pull your hamstring. What does it mean? It means... You can save your whole life for retirement. Your Roth IRA has been well developed. And the year of your retirement, there's a financial crash. As happened to a lot of people, including some of my family members this year. Looks like we may bounce back now. Pray, say a prayer for all the people that just retired. What does it mean? It means you can save for years to start that small business, that little bakery you dreamed of starting. And then the week of opening, there's some plumbing problem that floods and destroys all your equipment. And based on some loophole, it's not covered by insurance. What that means is you could walk with wisdom in all your relationships, but another person in your family or in your workplace makes a really foolish decision that hurts. And all of a sudden those relationships start getting ripped apart. Wow. Time. Time happens. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, when we were reflecting on time, we used this analogy that Ecclesiastes depicts time as kind of like the little brother or sister who's a toddler. When big brother or sister builds the big building out of blocks, what does little brother or sister come do? Knock it down. It's saying you can work your whole life really hard to build something and then time happens and it gets knocked down. Chance. Chance is an interesting word because we believe there's a God in heaven who rules over all. Amen. And Ephesians 1 says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, which means God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the big picture of human history, but also over the details. And we trust that he's able to work all things together for good for those who love him. And he can bring good out of even really horrible circumstances. But 
from the human perspective, we often can't see the good that God, God is bringing out of it. From our perspective, it often looks like total chaos, like chance. And we never understand why this horrible thing was allowed to happen. Here, as in everywhere else in Ecclesiastes, it's teaching us our limits. Friends, I want you to hear something deeply. Human beings cannot save ourselves. Did you hear that? If you get the wisest person in the position of government, if you get the wisest church leaders leading the churches, if you become the wisest person that you can be, that's still no guarantee that life is going to go smoothly because this world has been hurt by sin. We need a Savior. Somebody tell me His name. As we finish today, I want to say everything about this chapter points us to Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Here, Paul is writing to a group of people like us, the Corinthians, who are ordinary people. He just got done saying, listen, most of you were not famous or super talented or super successful when Jesus found you. You were sinners struggling through life and God still loved you. Isn't that glorious news? And he says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross, bearing the responsibility for all of your sin and foolishness so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And if you trust in Jesus, the Son of God, who died for you and rose again, now you are in Christ. You're united to Jesus. And if you're united to Jesus, the verse is saying, Jesus becomes your wisdom and your righteousness and sanctification. What does that mean? Let me show you three ways that this text points us to Christ as we finish. First of all, probably as we were studying this chapter, most of us at some point found the Holy Spirit touching our hearts, pointing out to us some areas in which we have been foolish in our life. I confess some of mine from the pulpit. Remember, I talked about talking too much. Anybody else want to be brave? Anybody, while you're listening to this sermon, the Holy Spirit touch your heart about an area where you've been foolish? Jared wants to be brave. <laughs> he said yes. Anybody else? Okay, I'm, he I'm hearing some yes. All of us have been foolish. And Proverbs says the, the person who's wise in his own eyes, there's more help for a fool than him. It's good for us to admit all of us have been foolish. All of us have done the destructive stuff. All of us had sinful hearts. We were born with sinful hearts, unhealthy hearts that were leading us down destructive paths, which means we all need grace and forgiveness. And no amount of making wise choices can go back and wipe out all the sinful, foolish stuff that we did. But Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, lived a life of Perfect obedience to his father, a life of perfect wisdom. And then on that cross, he bore my sin. He bore my foolishness, which means when my mind starts playing the tapes of all the most foolish and destructive stuff that I've done. And I think I'm so worthless. How could there be hope for somebody like me? The gospel comes and say the price for your foolishness has been paid in full by Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, you can be forgiven. That's one way the text points us to Jesus. A second way is this. Not only do I need to be forgiven, I need help to do better going forward. I, I don't want to continue saying I'm forgiven, but I'm going to keep living in these foolish patterns. I want to learn to embody the wisdom that the text was talking about. Well, where are we going to get that? The only way that we get that is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I want you to hear a Christian. If, if you hear this text and you think, I've got to do better, work harder, try harder in my own strength, and then life will start making sense. That's going to be exhausting. It's not going to work. The only way that we can learn to walk in the wisdom of God is to come with humility to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Say, I need your forgiveness and I need the grace of your Holy Spirit to help me to walk with wisdom. And by grace, if you trust in Jesus, God forgives your sin and He sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, teach you a new and better way. And third... Here's, here's the last point. As we saw at the end of our study today, even if 
I learned to live with total wisdom. There's lots of big human problems that I can't solve, starting with the problem of sin and death. And then we just added time and chance to that list, right? So there's, there's lots of big problems that no human wisdom can solve, but Jesus is the one who can solve all of those problems. He saves me from sin by dying on the cross for my sins. He saves me from death because if I trust in Him, then I know I'm going to rise again with Jesus. Death is not the end for me. And all the time and all the chance, listen, under the sun in human life, it is the case that often chaos in a minute can tear down what wise people built over the course of many years. But when Jesus comes back to make all things new, he's going to usher in a new creation that's filled with the peace and the wisdom and the love and the justice and the joy and the grace of God. And from that perspective, a billion years from now, everyone who's trusted in Christ will be able to look back at this life and say, everything that Satan destroyed, Jesus has redeemed. Everything that sin and time and death marred, Jesus has healed and restored. It's all about Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper now. And as we come, I want to come prayerfully. And I want to... Just bow bow our heads for a moment and I want to lead you, if you'd be willing, in a time of prayer to deal with God in your heart about the three things that we just talked about. Bow your heads with me. If you could just take a moment to confess to the Lord ways that you've been sinful and foolish, that you need His forgiveness. Perhaps ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind if there's any area in your life right now where you've been walking in a sinful, foolish pattern. Right now, you just need to bring it to the Lord and repent and to say, please forgive me. As you're confessing your sins to the Lord, I just want to tell you the truth of 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you came to the Lord in the name of Jesus confessing your sins, He says, you're forgiven. Here's the second prayer. Not only do we need forgiveness, we need a new heart. So take a second now to say, Jesus, change my heart. Help me by your Spirit to love you more than anything. To have your values, your desires, and your priorities in my heart. And third, let's just take a moment in prayer to acknowledge that neither we nor any other human being has the wisdom and power to heal all the wounds of the world and save us from sin and death, that we need Jesus. And let's just pray, come Lord Jesus and heal our world. Father, we thank you for your grace. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue the work that you've already been doing in this room, to draw us to Christ, to heal our hearts, so that we could walk in the wisdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.